Dean, you ready? Let's welcome our speaker. We're so glad you're with us. Come and bring the word, brother. All right. All right, all right, all right. Nice shoes. Thank you. Our friend in Austin bought Mark and I the same shoes at the same time. Because <laughs> basically when it comes to fashion, I just look to Mark. <laughs> I have zero sense of fashion on my own. And so if my wife isn't available, I call Mark. Let's pray. God, thank you that you have uh, just delivered so richly, so carefully, so wisely, 66 books of eternal truth, thousands of years and different writers laboring to capture and contain the oracles of God that are so profound, so multidimensional, so timeless. And yet in them, as fascinating and beautiful as they are, they are worthless. Every one of those 66 books, if we do not see you in every page. And so we thank you that the written word is an infallible testament to the living word. And it is upon you that we draw tonight. It is, it is to please you that we, we give you our time, our attention. We want to minister to your heart by becoming more like you. Because you are worthy of it all. And so would you... Uh, would you just continue to break the bread of the word among us? Speak to me, speak through me, and um, be pleased tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, okay. So turn to Genesis 32. I am going to be intentionally a little more brief to allow time for Mark and I to just sit and... Um, um, I don't know how long the Q&A will go, but uh, it's certainly not going to be exhaustive. Uh, there will probably be time for a handful of questions and some answers. But I want to, I want to press on with this, uh, the story of Jacob. We're going to skip a few chapters. Did I tell you Genesis 32? Okay. So what we're skipping is the period of time where Jacob moves on from Bethel, he goes toward Haran, and he spends 20 years with Laban, his relative. He gets two wives, Leah and Rachel, and he has to work seven years for each of them. And then he works an additional six years because Laban saw the blessing that was on Jacob's life. Laban's, Laban's flocks prospered under Jacob's care more than under his own sons. 
And so he liked it until it started to become a problem. His flocks were prospering so much, uh, he started to be jealous of that and started to steal and take from Jacob. And so we find this rather compromised uh, character who's positioned as an anchor in Scripture for our instruction, and yet most of his life, I don't know that we would have wanted to have dinner with Jacob. Right? It'd be like, honey, put away the silverware. <laughs> Jacob's coming over, and we don't know what's going to happen. Maybe he was a great guy, but if you read what's really offensive to our flesh is, there's a lot more to like about Esau. If you just look at his personality and some of the things he does and the way he interacts, Esau was a more likable guy. And so Jacob is this swindler and usurper. And, and now the irony is he's in this environment where he himself is getting tricked. He wanted to marry Rachel and Laban tricked him with Leah. And so he had to work seven more years. And then when that was over, the, the, the flocks were prospering, keep on working, and, but he's siphoning off from the, crop, from the flocks. And, and it just sets up this, this, uh, this very interesting, as an author, I look at it and I think, ah, plot twist, you know? Jacob is encountering someone who treats him like he has treated others. And it finally comes after 20 years, there's just too much tension and Jacob is going to leave, but he knows Laban is, there's, a, there's pressure enough for him to leave, but he also has to sneak away. And so he jumps on the road and he runs and Laban, you know, they're scattered over big distances. We have, uh, you know, uh, what do you all call a, a parcel of land here? It's a hectare or a quarter or sections and quarters and that's how many acres 120 is a quarter so you think of 160 not the farmer but a gifted worship leader <laughs> uh, but you know these guys were over miles and miles of land. And so Jacob sneaks away with his wives and his, he's got 11 sons now. He's prospered. God has prospered him. In the land of his affliction, God has prospered him. And he's heading back. And we actually see over the course of this story that I'm skipping over, Jacob has continued to have a dreaming life. It was God who gave him a dream that showed him how to do the striped sticks and the spotted sticks and to, to uh, put them in front of the sheep when they were drinking. God was continuing to lead and guide and bless Jacob in the midst of all of this. In the, in the midst of somebody swindling him, he gets two wives, two concubines, and 11 sons that become the pillars the governmental 12 tribes of Israel. 
And so here we are, we're going to work our way towards Peniel and what it means to carry this spirit that was in Jacob that continues to strive for God's best. And it kind of becomes a contradiction. I can imagine there's going to be some questions. But it's why Jacob matters so much because all of the dynamics of the new covenant that I described uh, do not and should not make us passive about the promises of God or the blessings of God. They don't, it's, it's not because it is granted thus that we just sit back, it is because it is granted in full that we think how far could I go into that? What's the upper reaches of this kind of life? And it's meant to stir a zeal for the full measure of our own transformation and our own apprehension of that for which we have been apprehended. That's Paul's language. So, again, to recap, the people of God are not only going to be the children of Abraham in faith and covenant, and the children of Isaac, who is the promised son, the inheritor of blessing, and who pictures the atonement in blood by which we enter this covenant, but also Jacob, who is the lower man transformed into a prince of God through this, this transformation. Bethel starts him on this journey with confidence that his father's covenant is now his and he's living in it and he spends 20 years in a process that no doubt caused a lot of introspection and reflection and God what is happening here and why and there's a lot of God conversations and he's God's talking to him in dreams and all of that but now it's time to re-enter the promised land of his forefathers and this scenario at Peniel is as decisive for him as Bethel was. He left with a decisive encounter and he's going to enter with a decisive encounter. So let's read it. First, he's also going to face his past. Do not miss that for 20 years he has been thinking, Esau still hates me. And Esau was a mighty hunter. He was a bigger, stronger, tougher dude. Jacob was not a match for Esau. And now God is calling him to re-enter that place where everything he's dreaded, you know the unresolved things of our past, how they eat away at us? We live with emotion that it just leeches out of us energy and emotion, uh, it takes a toll on our, that kind of stress, that kind of burden. What are they thinking about me? Have they, the, those past dynamics where relationships are broken, we failed others, they failed us, sins were committed, and we live in the shame of that. And Jacob's been living in this for 20 years, and he's going back, and you see in the narrative of what precedes this, he is, he is, uh, seriously concerned for his well-being. And so what he does is he stages his caravan and he, he sets uh, uh, categories of gifts 
in case Esau comes, because I think if I'm remembering right, he's even gotten word that Esau is alerted, he's returning. So he knows there's gonna be a confrontation and he sends you know, sheep, so many sheep ahead and so many donkeys ahead and so many this, that and the other with servants who are supposed to tell Esau or Esau's servants if they are approached, what is this? And the servants are supposed to say, these are gifts of my Lord Jacob for Esau, he is coming. In other words, Jacob is so emotionally distraught and controlled by the past narrative of his life that he is in full bribe mode. I don't know if I can manage or control the present and the future that I created by my past. So I'm going to fall back to trying to live out of, you know, that I'm just doing what I know to do. I'm, I'm, I'm still kind of tricking the circumstance. Yeah. Probably not a bad idea. Send a few bribes ahead. But we also see a certain kind of cowardly toll because if you look uh, in verse 21 of Genesis 32, we'll pick up there. All the presents passed on ahead of him, but he himself stayed that night in the camp. They came to a river called the Jabbok, and this is in the Transjordan. Uh, if, you, if you have the Jordan River that was kind of the dividing line that Joshua crossed over, there on the part immediately on the other side before it crossed over, there's a river Jabbok that feeds in, it flows west into the south flowing Jordan and there was uh, a, a, a city, uh, or not a city, uh, uh, an area there called Penel at the Jabbok and there's all kinds of little things, I gotta throw this in. There's all kinds of little wordplay in scripture. The Jabbok, I, I can't pronounce these right because I don't speak Hebrew, but it would be like Yabok. And then Jacob's name is Yacob and uh, um, uh, what is the other the other word here? I think it's about the it's about the struggle, but there's a word play where Jacob Jacob at the Jacob is Jacobing, <laughs> right? There's a, there's a little pun there that God puts in, but you see, he 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 manages to take everything across the river. But then it explains that he himself went back alone on the other side. So all of his possessions, all of his servants, all of his wives, all of his sons are now nearer to the problem than he is. And he's safe on the other side of the river and he spends the night there. And it doesn't explain why, but you have to just kind of enter into the spirit of it and see a tortured man. This is a guy that he's done everything he can, every step from Haran back to the promised land. He's thinking, am I gonna die? What's gonna happen? Do the promises mean anything? What's gonna happen to my wives, to my children? How quickly is Esau going to kill me? Why did I do what I did? Why didn't I do it differently? And you go through all the scenarios, all the role playing, all the regret, all the remorse, all the shame. 
And by the time it's all said, he's got them all there and he can't bear the thought that he's crossing, this is his own kind of Rubicon. And for whatever reason, and I think those are the reasons, he goes back and he stays alone on the other side. He stays on the side of his past because he can't bear the toll of the next day. And that's where we pick up in verse 2. The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 children, and he crossed the ford of the Jabbok. So it's, it, it, this is the way Scripture does it. It kind of backs up. He's, it's describing the part that I said. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had, but it's already told us he himself stayed the night. So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. And then he said, let me go, for the day has broken. But here's what everyone needs to get out of Jacob. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Let that just move you. This tortured man, riddled with the full toll and consequence of his damaged past and his flawed character is still in a wrestling match with God for the fullness of what God has already promised him. He's like, I, I am possessed with zeal I know before I left, you said the promise is mine, but I don't yet see everything in me because I'm hiding on the other side of the river terrified of what tomorrow brings. And I need you in a different way than I started needing you, and from the time I started needing you, I've always needed more of you. And if you're showing up now in this way, I am laying hold of you and I'm not letting you go until I get some confidence that I'm walking in what you said I was meant to walk in. Now the, the Pharisee and the Sadducee and the legalist and all of us, I'm putting all of us in that category, would want to scoff at Jacob and say, Jacob, you aren't, you don't deserve this. You aren't qualified for this. You've proven all the reasons why you don't deserve this. It's presumption. It's arrogance. It's ignoring real issues. Now, other, other passages, I think it's Amos. It's either Amos or Hosea. It makes it clear that Jacob was wrestling with an angel. And Jacob later, he acknowledges this is an angel. It's not just a man, okay? Scripture's vague because it wants us to read into it the same confusion Jacob might have. 
But Jacob is encountering an emissary of God, and now you have to think, <clears throat> Esau may have been a tough dude, but Jacob wrestles all night with an angel. Have you ever been in a wrestling match? If you got brothers, you ever been in a wrestling match? Man, I'm tired after, uh, at this age, I'm tired after 30 seconds. I'm tired just thinking about it. <laughs> but when I used to wrestle, I mean, I played basketball and soccer and other sports, but the wrestlers, those guys have a different kind of physical intensity and stamina that's almost unique in sports. And yet, wrestling matches are done in minutes. You have to see how zealous Jacob is for this, the possession of the blessing, not just the promise of it, not just the allusion to it, the assurance of it. No, I want to possess this. We know this angel could overwhelm him because by the end, Jacob won't let him go, and so he just touches his hip socket, and Jacob's like, okay, game over. I'm done. He could have done that from the beginning. We have to ask, why didn't he do that from the beginning? Why would God allow you to wrestle with him? Why would God want you to wrestle with him? Again, speaking as a father, man, I was rough with my boys. To this day, they still kind of flinch when they see me coming. Because I like to have really physical affection. So I'd grab them and pound their back and I'd mess their hair up and throw them on the ground and we'd roughhouse and wrestle. And you know, a young boy goes through these stages of wanting to test the father's strength. <laughs> and as a young boy, it's really easy to just go knock him down <laughs> you know you rough house and it's easy to dominate I can touch his hip socket and knock him out anytime in other words but I don't you actually enter into it and you're messing around because you want him to feel his strength you want him to flex his muscle. You want that little boy to begin preparing with a mindset of dominion and rulership that a man is meant to have as his framework in life. And so you wrestle with him so that he has to wrestle back and he feels the strength that he is able to exert on you even though it is an artificial strength that you are permitting him to feel. It still shapes his identity. It's a permission you're giving him, be a man. And he wrestles to get it. The angel was at no point being overwhelmed by Jacob. But sometimes when <clears throat> my son now, he's 33, he's got two little boys and they do with him exactly what my sons did with me. You get them on the other side of the room and they just run at full speed and dive into you. Like it's a, you gotta kinda watch the teeth don't get knocked out or other things. Maybe Canadians are a lot nicer than, <laughs> but, but this is just how we do it. And it's tackle and roughhouse and half the time the boy ends up crying because the dad got a little too rough. <laughs> 
And you're like, oh, you're fine. Brush it off. And he goes, ah, let's do it again. You know, he loves it even if he has to cry through some of it. And I know as the father, I'm feeling so much joy in those moments. It's shaping him to be the next generation of man that the world needs. But I get the satisfaction of holding my boy, pounding my love into him. <laughs> and so while he's all serious and groaning, if he could see my face, I'd be going, right? I'm loving it in a different way than him. So here we have God's emissary. Some, some actually, you know, these angelic appearances in Scripture, it's, it's really hard to tell. Is it an angel or is it what they call a theophany, a God himself manifesting, not just in an angel. But the divine and the lowest form of carnal human are in a wrestling match. The past is the baggage being brought in and the future of the promise is at stake. And he says, let me go for the day is broken. And Jacob says, I will not, I will not, I will. Just say that, I will not, until you bless me. Just feel that. Now, the blessing is there. The covenant assures it. But I want you to feel the zeal and the passion and the resolve and the commitment that the lower levels of the blessing are a good way to start tasting it, but if it's that good, what's the next level? What's the next level? How much of God can a man possess? And then the angel says this. He says, what is your name? Now isn't it interesting when God doesn't answer the question that we think we're asking, but his answer isn't more important than the answer we were trying to get. I'm not gonna let you go until you bless me and God says, face who you are. Face your past. Name it. In every moment where we fail and fall and we have the chance to check out and, and the condemnation comes in and we feel like pulling back and retreating because our heart can't bear the pressure of the disappointing our wives, disappointing our children, disappointing our husbands, disappointing our parents, disappointing God, and we want to shrink back from the pain of facing the fact that we have been our own worst enemy. And we actually have coming to us what we deserve to have coming to us if the rules of life are simply based on what do you deserve. I deserve Esau because 
I lied to him and I tricked him and I can't get away from that. And so now I want all of God, but God wants me to be a changed man, not just a blessed man. So he says, okay, you want that blessing. Here's what we're going to do. Tell me who you are. And Jacob has to say, we say the name Jacob, but what he says is, I'm a swindler, I'm a deceiver, I'm a usurper. And God's answer is, not anymore. God's answer is, because of tonight, because of your journey, because of your scars, because of your shame, but you won't back away from the fight. You keep wanting that blessing. You're wrestling with me all night. I love the fight. I love the zeal. And tonight is a new day. You are he who strives with God and prevails. You are a prince of God. Bounce over just real quick to Isaiah 41. We'll start in verse eight. I'm just gonna. But you, Israel, my servant, Isaiah 41, verse eight. You, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend. Wow. That's, that's the legacy. Verse 11, behold, all who are incensed against you shall be put to shame and confounded. Those who strive against you shall be as nothing and shall perish. You shall seek those who contend with you, but you shall not find them. Those who war against you shall be nothing as nothing at all. Kind of sounds like Isaiah 54, no weapon formed against you will prosper. Kind of sounds like I'm gonna bless you and bless you and bless you and, and I'm gonna keep doing that for I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say, fear not. I am the one who helps you. Here's the verse. Verse 14. Fear not, you worm. <laughs> Jacob. Let this be the most comforting word of the Lord to you tonight. Fear not, you worm, Cam. Fear not. You worm, Doug. Fear not. I'm not going to say it to any of the ladies. <laughs> Fear not, you worm, Dean. Fear not, you worm, Mark. Fear not. He doesn't use the new name. He uses the old name, which had all of Jacob's old nature. Fear not, you worm of the lesser man, the carnal man, I'm the one who helps you. Your Redeemer is the Holy One. And here is the, the generation of Jacob, Psalm 24, those who ascend the mountain of the Lord, that lesser worm nature that crawls in the dirt, that's the most basic instinctive creature there is that is not governed by a higher purpose. God's saying, 
That whole story of your forefather is the story of the nation and it's the story of what I'm producing in the earth and here's what I'm actually going to make of you. I'm going to make you a threshing sledge with new sharp teeth and you shall thresh the mountains and crush them and make the hills like chaff. In other words, I'm going to be so complete in my transformation of you that nothing can stop you or my purpose in you. And all of the mountains of the earth, all of the kingdoms of this world are going to become the kingdoms of our Lord and his Christ and I'm going to use you to mow them down and pave a way for my return. Yeah. No, come on. Yes. This is a room full of worms. <laughs> but we start there with humility, but we actually have to have a different confession over our lives. There is too much confessing. Well, I'm just a sorry, you know, I'm just a sorry sinner saved by grace. Yeah. But now you got to get to, that is, what's your name? Here's who I was. But then he says, here's who you are. And we start to live out of the truth of that. We start to confess that. That's part of the power in your weakest moment of failure and sin. God has crafted a, a, a presence purpose and atonement for your life such that it really is true you can have failed even sinned and look in the mirror and say I am the righteousness of God in Christ why because it was never your righteousness to begin with and if we can't get that then we're always striving to please the mirror If I look in the mirror and I see, oh man, I just, one minute left. If I look in the mirror and what I want to see is the person who has proved he's worthy, then the only way I'm going to see that is if I look in the mirror and see Jesus. I'm tempted to try to qualify that with some other statements, but I'm not going to. What is your name? He said, Jacob. He said, no, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with the men. And Jacob asked, me, asked him, please tell me your name. And he said, why is it that you ask my name? In other words, this should be obvious what's happening here. And there he blessed him, and Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. See, this is one of those inferences where is it an angel or is it actually God? And this challenges this idea that no man can see God and live. And you have to ask under which covenant was that said? The whole idea of being able to access the Holy of Holies came with a DEFCON 5 threat level under the Old Covenant. 
But then in the middle of that covenant, David builds a tabernacle with no barriers. And the, uh, the ark is right there and everyone's welcome. See, part of the mystery of the passages that confuse us about David is David as a prophet got glimpses that there was another covenant coming and the law wasn't the final word and he drew on that covenant and lived in faith like Abraham did. And he got away with stuff that we would look at and say, but the law condemned that. But it's not about getting away with stuff. It's about living in a certain kind of confidence that changes the rules of how we relate to God and how he relates to us. So then the sun rose on him and he walked away limping. And the last verse to look at before I wrap up is this amazing transformation in verse, the first couple verses of verse 33. He lifted up his eyes and looked. It's the new day. And behold, Esau was coming and 400 men with him. But verse three, Jacob himself went on before them. He had been hiding behind his fear, his shame, his past, and his baggage. But that old man is now transformed. He has a new name. He has a new nature. He has a new courage. Esau had been his worst dread, but now he fears God more than Esau. And he moves to the front of the line, and he's like, let's have this conversation. So, Jacob prefigures the new covenant transformation in this way. God blessed him in the strangest of ways. Think about that. I didn't make that point, but he asked for the blessing and God dislocated his hip. So what did Jacob get? A new walk. Here's your blessing. You'll never be strong in your own strength again. And for all your days, you will lean on me. He got a new walk. He got a new name. That's a new identity. And he got a beautiful future. That's the new day. It says, when the wrestling match was over, a new day broke. The night of your shame and sorrow ends when he changes who you are at the deepest level. Amen. Amen. So now we're going to take questions and I'm going to let Mark answer them all. No, we're going to use that. Oh, we are? Okay. Are we just going to stand? No, we're going to take a couple chairs. All right, God, I, I love listening to Dean. Uh, so, uh, the way we're going to do this is Chris is going to get a third mic, and uh, he's going to have uh, people with questions to ask questions. I'm going to defer as much as I can to Dean and occasionally make some interjection should I feel bold enough. You know, I want to just say something about uh, 
Oh, I can't remember what it, what it was that you just said that triggered, but it's so, it's so powerful. You know, one of the things, it's going back to the law of grace thing. But, you know, the way laws work, and covenants work the same, is that David tapped into a higher covenant. When he tapped into the higher covenant, the lower covenant that everybody else was living in did not cease to exist. That's right. It was just not applicable to him anymore. So when you uh, think of it, the laws of aerodynamics, when you, when you discover the laws of aerodynamics and lift and everything that makes it possible for planes weighing thousands, tens of thousands of pounds to, to, to rise into the air, the laws of gravity do not cease to exist. They are circumvented by a higher law. And so when you are no longer fulfilling the requirement of the laws of thermodynamics, <laughs> you fall. And, uh, and that's how a fall from grace happens. And, you, and so, you know, we're, we're trying to live in grace, but if, when we fail to live in grace, we fall back to law. And that's the default because that's the lower, the lower plane of existence. And so the beautiful thing is that whosoever will, and so David is living beyond his pay grade. And others are thinking, why is he allowed to do that? And of course, Jesus pointed to that when he was living in that grace as well. He said, well, David did it. You should, you know, if, you have, if you have a problem with me, then you have a problem with David. I said, well, we can't do that. They love David. <laughs> so where is Chris? All right, so we're going to go with some questions here. Who has some meaningful things to say? Here's my request, though, for time's sake. Uh, try to form your question quickly rather than expound on, you know, for four or five minutes, and there's a question in there somewhere. So... You might need to give a little context, but try to think in advance how to boil it down to get to your question quickly. Well, I didn't have a chance to do that, so this will take six minutes. <laughs> <laughs> My question would be somewhat twofold. Faith in what? And then how can I grow my faith? So what I hear last two days is righteousness is right standing with my covenant, my deal with God. And I gain that righteousness by faith. So, what am I supposed to believe? Is it just believing that I'm blessed? Or what, faith, how do I, what am I believing in to get that righteousness that leads to the blessing? What do I believe? And then even how might I grow my faith so that I believe better? So let me ask you this. If you had to answer your own first question, what would you say it is? Well, I think that is a that is a a, a consequence uh, of the faith that we are meant to possess. There's a lot of verses. He who, who who loves God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So there is a faith in a reward. That's part of the deal. That's not wrong. David was actually inspired to fight Goliath because he knew he was going to get the girl. I mean, seriously, you ask the question twice. What's going to be done for the man that kills him? You get Saul's daughter. Hmm. 
suddenly I have courage, <laughs> right? So there, I mean, that, you, you can't strip away some of the dynamics that motivate the faith, but the essence of the faith, uh, of, the, of the, the substance of the covenant is the person of Christ and the work of Christ. And so what, what Abraham's covenant is pointing to is the f sufficiency of God to produce the outcome God declares unilaterally because God has simply chosen that he is going to do it. And that is what God has afforded us in Christ by satisfying all the requirements of the law and all the problem of our brokenness so that in his broken body on the tree, he took the curse we lived under. I mean, it's all the stuff that, but it's, it's faith in the finished work of Christ. And the rest of those things are secondary and good, but it's faith in the finished work of Christ. Let me follow it up. There's two passages that I like to put together. The one is the one he mentioned from Hebrews. Uh, faith pleases God because one must believe that he is and is a rewarder of those who seek him. Uh, Abraham made the statement. He said, you are my exceeding and great reward. Yeah. In other words, the outcome of my pursuit of my faith is the privilege to look in to see who you were. What did Moses say when he was getting to know God? He said, you know, I, he's already had face-to-face -face encounters with God. He's talked to him face-to-face, -face, and then he says, I want to see your glory. And what, what does that mean? I mean, there's, there's stuff about you that are still hidden to me. I want to see that. And the reward of that is discovering that behind the veil that was, you know, the, the shaking of the mountain, the loud sound, the terrifying outer parts of God, on the other side was absolute mercy and goodness beyond comprehension. And so the faith is, I got a sneaky suspicion that at your core, you're good. Uh, and, and I wanna see that part of you. I see the law, I see you killing people, you know, destroying your enemies, it's all very horrific. But I believe that there's more to this and I wanna find that, I wanna see that, I wanna experience that. There's a parable that Jesus shared about people who, uh, you know, who, the one who hid his, his um, talent or whatever, and he said, I knew you were an austere man, right? In other words, my presumption, my belief system is that you're a scary guy. He said, all right, you believe me to be a scary guy? You're gonna get the scary guy. So, so what, what is our faith? God is good, and if I truly believe that, I lean into him, and that's what I get back. That's good. And it's, it, th those two concepts really dovetail. Because he is fundamentally good, he's going to fix what we can't. And he's going to uh, clear the entire debt load of humanity in the finished work of Christ. Because he's that good. Yeah. Tyson. Uh, so... <laughs> the so we talked about like works and stuff so what's there's obviously the resting in God and the covenant of just believing and just walking with him but then there's also like you can't just do nothing so how does that correlate like is there 
I know there's a difference between striving and just kind of walking with him, but how does that work out of like, sorry, I'm not running around here. But the other thing that, that kind of hits me is that Jacob did things that obviously didn't please God. I feel like when I'm doing things that aren't pleasing God, like I know God's like, you shouldn't do that. And then I do it anyways, and I feel like that's, you know, walking outside of that covenant. Okay, so let me give you a verse. You can't proof text with any single verse, but I'm going to give you a single verse. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. So whatever you're doing to please him, is it from faith or not? If, if it's not coming from faith, that, and this is where it gets into, you know, all the multiple dimensions, God is good and he has already provided what I need for righteousness. If I'm not acting to please him out of that confidence, confidence is another word for faith in these settings, am I approaching this fearfully that I better do that good thing so that he is pleased, then you can even do the good thing but he says without faith, it's not gonna result in me being pleased. And, 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 and here's part of the idea behind that. We are so prone to uh, self-sufficiency. We want the thing we do to be the thing that counts. I heard John Piper give a great illustration of this that to me is applicable in so many scenarios. How do you honor and esteem the mighty rushing mountain stream? Right? That you, you go, you climb a 14er, or you go down to about 10,000 feet and there's this, just this, whatever, the, this gushing, ever-flowing, he says, do you honor the endless supply of that stream by going and getting a bucket and adding your gallon of water, throwing it in, being like, look what I did. Or do you take your bucket and stick it in and say, I have an endless supply of everything I need and I will draw from this forever. That is a faith statement that pleases God. That's great, I love that. Uh, you mentioned the word rest, and uh, I, it's quite applicable because, uh, now this is a complicated issue because it, it opens up the whole matrix of what it means to be spirit-led, son of God, uh, New Testament Christian, I mean all of those things, but this is the language that he, the Hebrews writer used in regards to your question. He says this, for if Joshua had given them rest, then he would not have afterward have spoken of another day. And he talked on this the other day, but the next sentence is the pivotal one. There remains therefore a rest for the people of God, for he who has entered into, uh, entered his rest has himself also ceased from his own works as God did from his. So what we're attempting to do is to cease from our own works. And that creates a, an entire different spectrum in of understanding of what is a good work and what is an evil work. Because an evil work is not that which appears bad 
you know, according to a certain pretext of information, but it's that which originates from us as opposed to that which originates from him. Uh, the, what God is wanting us to do is to be so rooted in him, we're led by his spirit. We, we operate, the catalyst for all of our action is never selfishness, never our own discomfort, never jealousy, never competition, never pride. It's all, that's what constitutes a good work. If the catalyst for any work is anything other than God, then it's not a good work, even if it appears good. Well, I gave that money. Well, I did that good deed. Yeah, but let me show you your heart. That's what Hebrews 4.12 is all about, is the, is the word of God pierces to the division of soul and spirit. And the reason why God brings us the word of God is so that we can see what is catalyzing our Christian activity. Is it really God or are we looking for influence in the church and we're sort of doing, the, doing and saying the right things in, in front of the right people? That's not good at all. It's completely selfish, but it has every appearance of good. And so this is the, the work of the covenant. And what we get through grace is the ability to have the clarity to see what is the genesis of our motives. That's the journey. I want to give one other, because this is a good kind of question that probably captures some other questions. Uh, most of the time when I teach in depth on this, the range of questions comes from an angle like this, which is, yeah, but what about all the other stuff? And, and that's natural. That's, that's, it's right to ask those questions. But part of the reason we ask those questions is because we do know ourselves. We know my name is Jacob. And so we're so afraid of what we are capable of. We're so afraid of what we consider to be the sinful tendencies and the lack of discipline that produces the right kind of outcomes. And so we hear a message that says, you're free. And we're like, I don't know that I want to be free. <laughs> and you actually see this in the behavior of the Israelites. They were like, it would be better for us to be back in Egypt because at least there we knew where the meal was coming from and and so there is uh, there is this desire we all want to get uh, what's a perfect score in bowling 200 400 300 well I'll take the average 300 120 uh, yeah 120 yeah. nice we all want to bowl 300. So why don't we all go put up the lane bumpers? And we, we want, you know, if we want the 300, avoid the gutter ball. Always have that thing that keeps it where you're most likely to get the favorable outcome. The problem is at the end of that, whatever your score is, you know it's not real. Because you yourself aren't a bowler. You just did what was necessary to make it look like you are. And so, Romans 6, thanks be to God that you were once slaves of sin, but you have become obedient from the heart. And that is at the end of the day what God is looking for is people who know how to score 300 because they're good bowlers. In other words, we go through all of the stuff that Jacob's life points us to and we have to do real reckonings with God and as a result, he really transforms us and now 
The righteous deeds are coming from a righteous position and that is an expression of the faith in which we live because we are rooted and grounded in the love of Christ and what he has already accomplished and we aren't trying to trick him or others with the appearance of our righteousness but we have been transformed from the inside out so that those things are actually natural to us. Next question. That's, wait, oh. uh, that's a great answer, but let me just tell you a, a little, little story. Um, that, that, that thing that causes us to fear, you know, our, what we're capable of. There was a season in my life when I was a young Christian, I was at Christ for the Nations in Dallas, Texas, and I was what you would call a very diligent Christian. I mean, I was doing everything right. I was doing street evangelism. I was getting up at 5 a.m. and praying. I was fasting regularly. I was doing all of those things. But what I didn't know is what was the catalyst for all of it. I assumed my newfound faith, my zeal for God, and, you know, was really propelling me. And I was pretty, pretty excited about myself, my successes. And then one day, the Lord visited me with his love in the most amazing way. And the love struck at the heart of the fear and the condemnation and the disqualification that was inside of me that was the true catalyst behind all my zeal. And what it did was it took the, the force that was coming from uh, fear out of my life. Suddenly, I was not nearly as good of a Christian as I was the year before. Now, I, I wasn't disciplined. All of, those, all of those things fell off. I wasn't praying anymore. I wasn't getting up at 5 a.m. because I was liberated. And uh, <laughs> it's so funny. And then it started creating, you know, and I thought, why, why can't I do those things? Because God had changed the source of my strength, but I hadn't yet learned how to dip and drink from that source, and it hadn't yet changed fully who I was. But now the test was, do you still believe I'm, you're loved even though you're not doing all the things you know you should do? And I was given a choice to go back to the, to the river of shame and fear and, uh, and guilt to to give impulse, but the love of God, the revelation of love was so great, it wouldn't let me go back. And, and then what began to develop is that catalyst for good works now had the right foundation. But if that transition had not happened, I would have been a, a self-righteous hypocrite my whole life. And that is probably the the experience of a good proportion of Christians who are laboring to do the right things but are not changed. And that's tragic. It actually is, uh, when I planted and pastored a church in my 20s, we started with an unusual policy. And that was, we found new people that were coming most of them would be like, man, we're just here to serve. We want to get involved. You know, what can we do? How can we? And we were so disturbed by that that our policy was, if you want to join us, you can't do anything for six months. 
because most of the church discipleship is very works-oriented. We need the volunteers, we need this, that, and the other, and so we're always making appeals for people to serve, and they're always serving as the way they establish their value. And so if they go to a new church, that's just where they are. They're like, I wanna, they want the immediate acknowledgement that they're a mature Christian because they're ready to serve. And they have that heart that gives them the satisfaction out of the accolades that brings and all the reasons. Churches are filled with orphans. And what he's describing is the necessary messiness of a relational process. See, if you choose to go deep into this, I, I want to inoculate you early on. It doesn't get better before it gets worse. People are so wound up on the inside, carrying so much expectation and pressure, that they, when they get a taste of that freedom, they do exactly what Mark did. It's like, oh my God, I don't have to do anything and he still loves me. I'm not gonna do anything. And actually that's a really important phase for them to go through. Because it tests the limits of whether it's real. And those around them, if you fall into, well, you better start to, you're going to prove that it's not real and you're gonna steal from God the goodness he's trying to give them. My children cost me so, I've got eight kids. I, I, I quote the verse in Proverbs, the leech has two daughters, give and give. <laughs> I mean, you raise a child and it's like, at what point are you gonna, you know, you're just a drain on resources. <laughs> but I love you. But I love you. What does that have to do with anything? You're mine. It's my privilege to raise you in an environment where your worth is not associated with anything you contribute. And so we have in the church, we are really good at raising human doings. And it, you have to intentionally unplug from that and risk not being loved to become a human being who simply is and they are loved. So my question is, where does ambition fit into covenant when you're receiving grace in that covenant and when you can't set the pace? That's a profound question, and I'm going to do what I did with Steve. How do you think Jacob answers that? I think he tried. What do you see at Peniel with him wrestling with God? He pressed in until he found it. Do you think there was ambition in that? Yes. May have been any number of reasons but Jacob was wrestling for something more than he currently possessed, and that is a basic kind of ambition. And I think, actually, we have neutered an essential part of our fundamental design in God when we try to strip people of ambition and we tell them that's not healthy, that's not godly, that's not this, that, and the other, if you think about the time when the disciples were the most grossly ambitious, 
the sons of thunder, Jesus, let us sit on your left hand and your right. Can you imagine? <laughs> and he didn't scold them. He just said, can you do what I'm gonna do? He didn't actually, when, when they were jostling for position on the final night, when he's about to die, they're jostling for position and he says, if you want to be great, if you want to be great, he doesn't say you should not want to be great. He says, if you want to be great, here's what you do, become the servant of all. So that's when the kingdom is allowed to express itself in the way that he wants it to be expressed, there is no threat level to a kingdom made up entirely of servants who are trying to outserve each other. So we take our towels, we serve. I see you serving more than me. I'm like, oh, no, you don't. <laughs> and I up my game in outward directed service, not because I'm trying to please a, a standard, but because I actually do want to be great in the kingdom forever. If that's a reward associated with me taking up a towel and serving and stacking chairs at the end of the meeting and you know doing all the stuff that's all the stuff that everyone should do. Ambition me up. And I think the Lord blesses it and it's part of the verse. He's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. He knows that the, the promise of the reward is part of the incentive to wrestle with the angel. I, I think part of your question is, is uh, but there's, there's something implicitly self-glorifying in, in ambition. And so I don't want to unleash that. But I think the story of Jacob as presented by Dean says basically this. That's all right. I'm, God is saying, that's all right. I know how to deal with ambition. Yeah. I know how to bring you face to face with the negative side of that ambition. Yeah, that ambition led you to lie and steal and cheat and swindle. Okay. All right. Well, I can fix that. Yeah, that's good. And so the process that God brings you through because of the ambition is part of the preparation. So, so the ambition is, is actually a catalyst to begin this. And that's what mine was. My, I wanted to be great. I wanted to be great my whole life. I just pursued all the different avenues. And when I came to the kingdom, God said, okay, you can be great. I, I just have to train you a bit first. Yeah. And, that training, and break you. And training was breaking. Yeah. And it was, it was, it was changing the, the catalyst for wanting to be great. The nature behind the desire to be great. And only he can do that. Yeah. But he has to start with somebody who has to get up and go. Yeah. Yeah. But it's like the idea behind meekness. You know, meekness means power and strength bridled. It's the picture of a, a, a thousand pound horse, a stallion with muscles and strength and built for speed, but it's got a bridle in its mouth that controls all of that. And so meekness is the strength of that stallion under control. And ambition is similar. It is something that has great motivational power in our lives that God baked into our design, but it's meant to be tethered to and, and the, the kinks and the wrinkles of the carnal the carnal inspiration behind certain kinds of ambition worked out, but the ambition itself is not fundamentally wrong. Uh, 
Uh, you made mention to this book, uh, the faith movement. And what are some of the, you said, errors or deviation? What in the faith movement, what did you see in that? Tying into ambition. Ambition? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, what you saw was uh, a degradation of the power of faith and the purpose of prayer to satisfy the lower nature. And it was, uh, I'm entitled to the best car, the best house, the best this, the best that, and because I have faith as a catalyst for getting things, I want my stuff. And there are it also becomes comparative because some people actually are meant to walk in certain degrees of that and others have a different path and we start to compare and then I want their path and so I'm going to claim that but I'm not talking to God anymore about the path he has for me and so I think it's, it's um, the excess of carnal desire that faith was used to justify uh, I would just add to this, you know, um, at the beginning of the faith movement, I was at Christ for the Nations in Dallas, Texas, and I, I listened to virtually everything. There was hundreds of teachings by Kenneth Hagin. They were amazing. And I would put him in a different category because of the... I would agree with that. There was a, a submission to God and a desire to glorify God in everything he did that permeates everything he taught. Yep. It's so powerful. But here's what I saw that the emphasis resulted in what it what happened was was people began to study and proclaim the characteristics of faith which did not in itself produce faith what it what it produced was uh actors and what i you know what happened is everybody now it set up a hierarchy of of faith based on what you say and what you do and so rather than actually freeing us to, to develop our faith, we were developing our acting skills. We were saying the right things. And, you know, I had a friend, I remember he did this, like nobody was allowed to be sick because if you're sick, that was proof you didn't have faith. Right. And so this guy sneezes and he's and he suddenly apologetic about sneezing. And he's, oh, oh, hallelujah, my body's working the way it should, casting off to sickness. Uh -huh. Yeah. <laughs> it was so bizarre. And, and we had these, it created these false exteriors of people who had a language. How are you doing today? On top and rising. But it wasn't honest. It wasn't authentic. It wasn't genuine. On top and rising. <laughs> <laughs> this, this I know a guy that would, he would say, if I was any better, I'd be Superman. <laughs> <laughs> this is the kind of, like, we are chameleons. Uh, the flesh, the fallen nature, is a foremost, it is a chameleon. Right. We are gifted, and that's why in the world, the people who rise to the top are fake politicians and actors. Right. Yeah. Because that's what's celebrated by the flesh. Right. And when that, when that come, becomes part of a culture, a Christian culture, it only produces the same. And so, you know, God broke me out of that, thankfully, as, as he did. I still believe many of the tenets of what Kenneth Hagin talked about, but there's a way for it to be implemented, and your flesh will never implement it well. So I'm going to suggest we do two or three more questions 
just because I want to be mindful of people that need to get back and, you know, whatever the n night holds for you. We can go longer, but I'm, if, yeah. Okay. I feel like I'm trying to wrap my head around something that you probably already explained, but where, where I keep coming back to is how does this translate, this revelation that we're beginning to walk in, how does this translate to my children and to new Christians? Because to me, it seems just like a revelation of his love that, that creates in me genuine faith. But I still fall back into finding myself with my children being like, okay, but still sit here and listen. Like, like we, we're trying to produce genuine faith and love and acceptance in children. Like, I, I that's, that's a great question. You got I, I'll start with this and you can clean it up. <laughs> uh, you know, the, the way that we actually become Christians is we have to first discover our depravity. If we do not discover our depravity, then we'll never be in a position to repent and to turn to the cross and die to ourselves. And so the challenge is, I'm gonna love you as my child, but I still have to communicate to you the nature of the truth that you are at your core depraved. You're completely selfish. You know, and, and I think that's pretty easy to do, <laughs> right? But, but you leverage that without diminishing their, you know, uh, of course the secular psychologists, well, you know, you'll, you'll make them feel bad about themselves. Yes, they are worms. You know, get comfortable. You, that's as high as you get by yourself. You are a worm. Well, that's demoralizing. Well, then come into the kingdom. <laughs> you know, but, and the rejection of that truth is fundamentally what separates separated the Pharisees from the publicans who re rejoiced in Jesus' ministry. Because they could not accept that. And it's that anthem that you hear in that Who song that says, I don't need to be forgiven. I think at a practical level, I would answer in two ways. One, if you really get this, then you will be a different kind of mom who can produce over the course of their life that Proverbs promise that you have raised them in the way they should go. And yet, if you look at God in terms of sovereignty and you look at history as his child, he used the law for 1,500 years. 2,500 years. I, 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 I'm trying to think when Moses was 1,500. Anyway. Yeah, right. <laughs> But God himself started with it, gave him a taste of something else in Abraham, and then tutored humanity under the law so that they could come, as Mark said, it's a tutor that leads us to Christ. Well, if you are transformed by this message, the law is not your enemy in terms of how you raise kids. You aren't going to raise kids without the word no. I hope you don't. You need to, you've got to be able to say, no, no, don't do that. And if you do that, there's a consequence. And your commitment to your word and to your, the consequence is part of how they know uh, that when you promise them something good, they can rely on that. The, the commitment to 
consistent discipline and the law is part of how God proved in the new covenant, I'm gonna be equally committed to that. And so if you are, if you are a legalist, then you will crush your children with the law. But if you are transformed uh, in the way that we are meant to be, then you will use it in dose appropriate measures and you will begin to coach them to a higher purpose out of it because they will be assured that all of that was for their good and you're leading them to something even better. James 2.24, which is probably, you've heard this question before, how do you deal with the, the statement by James, so you see then that we are justified by works also, not just faith? Yeah. You want to go? Yeah, uh, and I'll just say it, it this way, that, um, that faith produces good fruit. And and this is what Jesus said to the Pharisees. He said, you know, uh, uh, like he was always challenging them about the fruit that was coming from their lives. And so faith, and that's what he's saying. He's not saying, he's not admitting or disqualifying us from obtaining righteousness by faith. But if faith is in us and we're connecting to God, then there should be evidence of transformation. If there's no evidence of transformation, then it's just talk. You know, if you're just saying, you, you keep throwing up the phrase, well, you know, I'm, I'm incorrigible, I'm, I'm doing all these awful things, but I, I'm under grace, not under law. You're, you're not under grace. <laughs> because there's no evidence of transformation. And that's essentially what James is talking about. And then, of course, he's challenging them all about the lack of transformation. The whole book of James is about the evidence in their lives of not transformation and how they're ignoring it through this, you know, fake spirituality. Yeah, I would just add slightly that I think, I, I mentioned this to somebody else, James as a proportion is, I, I don't know exactly, but I would say 2% of the New Testament. And that's actually a good ratio for James's message. It, because at the big picture, what James is basically calling for is for us to be the people we say we are and to be people of integrity who live outwardly what we claim to possess inwardly. And so the, that is a good gut check that's always in there. Are you, is your life exhibiting the integrity of the faith you depend on? And it's not, Paul is, Paul commands the New Testament with a proportion that outweighs James's influence in that regard, because the sum of the word is truth. And, and Paul is relentless in saying we're justified not by our works, but by faith. But James is appropriately saying, therefore, that degree of transformation will prove itself. But, but the only other thing I would add is, our tendency is to take the snapshot of the person and to say, well, you aren't proving it now to me. And therefore, I don't approve. And we position ourselves as judges of others' sanctification far too much. Um, you know, we always talk about James in this respect, but actually, 
if you look at John, I mean, the book of John, John is worse. John is, doubles down on that even, even more harshly, and yet he's the apostle of love. Yet nobody seems to object to John. But when they talk about the subject, they're always pointing to James. They're actually saying very similar things. If you say you love God and hate your brother, you're a liar. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, uh, hello. Yeah. He's talking about, the, he's really, they're dealing with the chameleon nature of people who come into an environment, copy the behavior on the surface, but are missing transformation. That's what they're doing. Both of them are actually dealing, touching on that issue. And something we need to be aware of, because the fear of man brings, can bring a lot of pressure to conform. But conformity is not transformation. One or two more? chewing over is the the merchant going and selling everything he has for the treasure and the pearl. And one thing that Brian Simmons shares is that Jesus is the merchant and he sold everything to have the pearl and that we're the precious pearl. And so that he had paid for everything. So I'm just curious on your mindset of that. Because I keep conflicting it with something else that of course I've heard was that, you know, salvation is free but deliverance is going to cost you. All these other things are going to cost you. But then that doesn't bounce off well with that scripture there? Well, I think the, I agree with that as the fundamental interpretation. I think it works both ways. Because we see that that was his heart toward us, that also becomes our heart toward him. That he would be our great pearl and we would recalibrate all of our sense of value around the apprehension of him in full. But where it starts with Jesus, the, the picture is, it, you know, there, there's these tensions in scripture, election and predestination, uh, sovereignty of God versus free will of man. The picture is actually pretty appropriate, I think, to answer itself for you. He buys the field of the whole world, but there is a pearl in the whole world of those who will receive and be numbered among those destined for salvation. And so the sum total of humanity was purchased in his action, and yet the sum total of humanity is not going to say yes to that gift. That doesn't mean the gift isn't available to them. It's freely available. But... It was worth it to him in the extravagance of his grace. He didn't just buy the, the one by one square foot. He bought the whole thing for that prize. Does that answer your question? Yep. Last question. Make it a good one. <laughs> My question is to Dean. How long have you been carrying this message for the church, and what is your hope for the future? <laughs> I appreciate that question. Um, 
I, I had the benefit of uh, the first 20 year, years of my life being in a church environment that really sought to understand the deeper things of the word. So it wasn't necessarily this, but it conditioned me to um, um, really believe there was more than what we just normally got. I would, I would be frustrated if I went to church with one of my friends and, you know, sermon's over in 20 minutes and I'm like, is that all there is? So even as a kid, I, I, I hungered for that. So I, I want to acknowledge my root system, even if it wasn't this message, it set me up to, to pursue this. But I started, I, I've been in this for 30 plus years. I started in my 20s. It's part of the decision we made when people come. You aren't gonna become a human doing. We're gonna help you become a human being. You're gonna experience the Father's love not based on your performance. The discipleship was all rooted around that. And, um, and uh, I started on the outskirts of this, but it's been in the last 10 to 15 years that I've really started to see more of the basis in covenant and the totality of the new creation that results that um, to me, most people know like my book Ecclesia Rising and they think I'm the Ecclesia guy. I'm this guy way more. I care about this way more. It's why in my courses, Ecclesia is number three because we will have so much more authority as the Ecclesia if we understand covenant and we, li we, we fully become new creations and now we start to partner with heaven in those ways. And so I, I'm, I'm greatly perplexed by the performance-driven sin management mindset of most discipleship. And so my hope is I don't, I don't this is a bad faith statement, I don't think the whole church is going to get this. There's too much machinery and pressure to just keep doing the stuff that we've always been doing, and it's that definition of insanity you, to do the same thing over and over again and expect a different result. But we're stuck. There's too much infrastructure going there. But I do believe that the Lord is in the process of exalting his son. It's, it's the chief focus of the Father above all. And the price he paid for that covenant and the potential to truly be a new creation is too dear and precious to him. He is going to raise this message up more and more because it, it is the only thing I've seen that truly transforms lives. Great question. Well, we're gonna wrap up for tonight and uh, it's great, great to do this. Great to have Dean. We're we got one more service with him tomorrow. He was originally flying out Monday morning, so we were going to have all day yesterday. But then he had the opportunity to make a bunch of money by changing his flight and getting getting out early and getting a thousand dollar credit. Really? No, I'm just that's not true. <laughs> <laughs> one of my flights was canceled, and I had to rebook. And they had the option of either going later or earlier, and so he's going out flying out at three p.m. tomorrow instead of. 6 a.m. Monday morning. And so, uh, but you know, we've had a great time together. It's been wonderful. I, 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 I actually want to say, before, because I won't be able to say this tomorrow, this has been a real privilege for me. 
I am so appreciative of the time you've taken to come and uh, not everyone sets aside this much time for this kind of, I mean, there's a lot, this takes a lot out of you to do this, not just the weather, but you know, these are, at some point your brain starts to melt and you can't take notes fast enough and, but your spirit is receiving, I echo what Mark said, and you keep coming and I get to keep talking about stuff I love. And, and uh, I'm telling you, we have barely scratched the surface. It is all over, everywhere in scripture. And once your paradigm shifts, the, the, the power of a new paradigm is you start to see it where you previously missed it. And every verse becomes a Bethel moment. Surely God was here and I didn't know it. And so you're gonna start to see things in the word that you didn't see before. And so to come and, and the amazing worship and to get to know some of you and to, to be in the, these couple of other meetings and the lunch we had and I heard some of the stories of, you know, the guys that have been here 42 years, 42 years, 36 years. Where is he? Jim. He's, yeah, Jim, he's not, he stepped he out. <laughs> but, but you all really have something beautiful and I honor it and it's just a privilege to be a, uh, a have the, the friendship that God has brought Mark and I into so that I can be with you as the overflow of that. And so thank you for letting me be here. Yeah. All right.